I often feel retreats are not uh, moments to gather information. Information is available everywhere. You know, it's there on the net, it's there in the books. And we just have to do a little bit of search and study, we'll get it. Retreats are for gathering consciousness, which is hidden behind the information. Information can be given in many ways. Somebody can speak about it, we can read about it, but what is important is to carry consciousness and that is not so easily possible. So this is a wonderful occasion. Sometimes I also envisage retreats, I'm just, uh, since I'm sharing, where we don't have much talks, we just uh, have such wonderful music after which, you know, talks fall flat. And then we just have sessions where we read, say, Savitri, and something like synthesis of yoga. We reflect, meditate the whole day. We take walks and just let those words sink inside. These can be very powerful means. So these are just some suggestions thrown in the air. There are retreats like that held in different places. Coming to towards the close, maybe we'll keep 15 minutes. Maybe out of one hour, I'd like to keep 15-20 minutes for question and answers because it's the last one. But just to set the ball rolling, in any yoga, there are three coordinates. The one who seeks, wants to do the yoga, the sadhaka. Then that towards which he is moving, the sadhya, the goal of all his efforts. And then the bridge between the two, which is sadhana. In the bhakti yoga, we have the bhakta, the bhagwan, and the bhagavat. In jnana yoga, we have the seeker, the jigyasu, the state of knowledge, the self, and the way of jnana. In karma yoga, we have the doer of works, the master of works, and the path of works. So this is the way any yoga proceeds. So why I'm saying this, this is a very obvious fact, of course. But the reason why it needs a little emphasis is because very often we want yoga minus the divine. Such a thing doesn't exist, actually. I mean, then it's an exercise which can give us maybe some good health. Nothing wrong with it. We should know it is not yoga. We should know that it's an exercise. And we should know things as they are, see things as they are. But if you really want yoga, yoga means union. Union with what? We can use the word our greater self. We can use the word the Lord, divine. doesn't matter. But it has to be a union with something which is, we can use the word greater consciousness, higher consciousness. It doesn't matter. But there is something towards which we aspire for, seek. Then there is other problem which is peculiarly modern is about the role of guru or master in, in the yoga. Well, theoretically many things are possible. People often say that, do I really need to you know, have a master or a guru? I am not putting only living guru. Guru, like Shurabinda and the mother 
are our masters. They may not be living. There are many masters in the past. Krishna. People have turned to them and sought. Now, partly this tendency is because of a very individualized mind, this strong, very strong ego individuality which develops in modern age, which wants to get all the benefits of yoga but without surrendering itself. Basically, if you look at the root of it, which is fine, it's not that it's right or wrong, but we should know things as they are. So what happens, uh, in that case, people say, we can also do it, why not? If Buddha can do it, Sri can do it. <laughs> so, just take a look at Buddha's life. Leaving behind wife, child, walking into the forest for years and years, seeking. So it's easy to say, Buddha can do it, I can do it. Buddha knew it, so he said, Buddham Sharnam Gachami, Sangham Sharnam Gachami, Dharmam Sharnam Gachami. Shirobindo can do it. Yes, try doing, dropping off a job where you are getting, in those days, 1905, 750 to 800 rupees a month. Drop that job for nearly nothing. And then again, leave behind everything, even after getting all the great realizations of yoga. And walk away for years and years, what Shadalu was mentioning yesterday, and so many more things. And even then, great ones, Buddha, Sri Ramakrishna Paramans, storming the kingdom of heaven by storm, Sri Aurobindo, Vivekananda, they all still took outwardly, momentarily, the help of a guru because it's like that touch. And they would remember it because this is, uh, imagine learning pure physics all by oneself. Theoretically, yes, one can learn. One can make all the discoveries that physicists have made all their life. But if the goal is to reach somewhere, what's wrong in taking help? I mean, to say the least. I'm not saying it's just about taking help. But there's, there's a minimum. If we are really sincere about the goal, then what prevents us from saying, you know, except for our ego that look, you know, no, I'll, I'll not. Fine, one can do it by oneself, but it's not just a manual. There are real dangers and difficulties in the path of yoga which only the guru can take away. It's one thing to read an almanac on going to Mansarovar. It's very nice. Ah, wonderful. I'll make a trip. Try making a trip yourself without having anybody to guide or, you know, Lift the baggage. See what happens. And this is a Mansarovar of Mansarovar, an Everest of Everest, a Himalaya of Himalayas, which one is called upon to climb, whose coordinates are not so well known. At any point of time, the seeker can trip over his own sadhana. Such are the masks of the ego. They, can, they come in all varieties, size, shapes, colors, <laughs> suited to the person. Therefore, the Guru is someone who protects us, takes our baggage, holds us when we stumble, carries us when we are tired, even soothes us, gives us rest, nourishes us. And if perchance, in spite of all this, we leave his hand and try to run and fall into an, you know, under a crevice, he plunges into the crevice to pull us out. He doesn't say, oh, you fellow, you, you broke away from me and fell down. 
What does mother say? I am responsible. I hold myself responsible for everyone, even those whom I have seen for a second. Even those who have turned hostile against us and gone away. Is that a joke? Even for any closest family relation, can we feel like that? We'll get detached. Hell with him. His life, let him go. Look at the divine grace. So, you know, we should know the what it means to turn to the mother. It's not just a joke, you know. Sometimes we also feel with regard to Shurabindra and the mother, that do I have to regard them as God? Depends upon whatever goal is. If the goal is to arrive, I mean, at the highest realization of yoga, of integral yoga, then it is an age-old knowledge known in India since yoga began. Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Deva Maheshwara, Guru Shakshat Param Brahma, Tasmai Sri Guru Venama. What is there in debate about it? It's known since as old as the Himalayas. It doesn't matter who the Guru is. Kabir's Guru was inferior to him in attainment. So also Goraknath's Guru, Matsyantranath, whom Goraknath goes and rescues him. And yet, this is the, this is the way, because then the divine acts. Shubhinda has said, it doesn't matter, even sometimes the Guru may be inferior, but if you are seeking his true and you regard him as the divine, divine will act through him to fulfill your aspiration. And it's not about Shurabindu and the mother. Anyone, if one really takes as a master, then master is to be regarded as someone coming from the Parbrahman. With Shurabindu and the mother, there are many levels of relationship people can form. People can turn to them just for a general guidance. A lot of people were there who used to ask Shurabindu various questions. So those who are following other paths, there are so many letters. And this is the beauty that we may not be on the path of integral yoga. We may be on any path. And sometimes we are confused. We don't know for various reasons and want to know. And Shurabindu is there to help us. Then we may not be even undertaking yoga. That is what I, you know, uh, I mean, admire is the wrong word. Love. Love about Mother and Shurabindu. People want to bring up their children, they want to know what is the right way and beautiful way and we read from other places, read also from other and see, you know, there are so many insights, lights, which they have thrown on each and every subject. Relationships, marriage, conflicts, human problems, materialism, wealth, success, everything. It's all available. We don't have to regard them as guru or god to at least take advantage of that which is already there. This is the minimum which all of us can take. Want to know about meditation, techniques. It's all there. So there are so many kinds of relations we can form with regard to Shurabindu and the mother. But if we want to take to integral yoga, then just like any other yoga, there is a path and a process. It's not something which hangs in thin air that I can do it my way. It doesn't work out anything. I mean, if you have to switch on the lights, there is a way to do it. I can't say, I am nearer to this switch, I will switch on, why doesn't that light come on? Somebody will say, are you crazy? That's not the way. So, for integral yoga, there is a way and a process given by Shurabindu and the mother. It's, you know, sometimes we like to hear supramental and, you know, higher consciousness as something very impersonal and so, you know, we just do everything impersonally, we don't have to bring in uh, anything, anybody. 
We can try it. Shrivindo said you will land up in a most horrible copper. Okay, we can try it. It's, it's, Supermind is not a plaything that we know. We just run and just catch it and uh, say, okay, fine, I'm getting supramentalized. More likely, we will get inframentalized, as Amal Kiran used to say. Whatever little balance we have, we are likely to lose. So, there is a process and a path of integral yoga. And in this process and path, it is the Divine Mother who, whom we have to open to and become receptive to. If we may not like it, then, well, we are always free in this world. There are so many things, so many paths, so many processes. But in this yoga, the way is to open to the Divine Mother and be receptive to her. Because she protects us against that excess heat and light of the supramental consciousness. You know what happened when Sampati was flying to the sun? There is a story in Ramayana. Sampati and Jatayu, they want to fly to the sun. And Jatayu tells him, don't do this. No, 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 I can fly to the sun. You know, I have enough strength in my wings. So Jatayu says, I know, I also have strength in my wings, but you are doing a foolish act. No, I will, I will, I will, I will do it. Or rather, it was the other way around. Jatayu, Jatayu would... So Sampati, knowing that you know this is a dangerous thing, covers him, protects him. He, his wings get burnt. They both fall down to air, to ground. They realize it's the most dangerous thing. So what does mother do? And mother speaks about it in, in volume 10. There is a whole passage on the mystery of the great descents or incarnation. She shields us. She knows how much dose we can take. She gives us that much dose and she also prepares us for the next level. It's like a homeopath. You go and tell your malady, I'm in ignorance. So homeopath will give you some. Then you come back and say, you know, after taking my ignorance has increased. Okay, now I know the right remedy. Take the same thing in greater concentration and oh, now I'm in knowledge. <laughs> so... She knows how to lead us by the hand. She has come down to our level, right up to us. If we are in kindergarten, she will carry us by the hand at kindergarten level. If we are in a postgraduate level, she will carry us through a postgraduate level. And we are all in different stages. No, no one knows who is where. Only the Divine Mother knows. So, to open to the Divine Mother makes the whole journey safe. It makes the whole thing smooth. We are protected. We are carried. We can do it ourselves. But as I said, it's the most dangerous thing to try out. There's a whole process of change. It takes time. It's a long process because there are many parts. Human beings are very complex. And particularly in this yoga, there has to be not just glimpse or experience of the divine, but a thorough cleansing. The ego has to be gone completely. So it is smashed where it's a question of experience, we can have many experiences without doing much to the ego. A lot of people in so many paths have so many experiences. I'm aware, having met so many persons. We ourselves, we get glimpses, so many glimpses. That doesn't mean ego has gone. We can write a whole diary of these experiences. But that's nothing. It's the change of nature. So what happens is, if we are satisfied with experiences and these glimpses, we are not worked upon. The ego is not being worked upon. But in this yoga... Shubindu says the power is of a thorough going character and in the end 
tolerates nothing, even the smallest, because it's a perfect perfection. So the ego is worked upon. We are hit hard, whether in the ashram or outside. If we take to this path, ego will be smashed to bits, pulverized, and very few can bear it. If you want to carry our ego and go to the gates of heaven, not the heaven with, you know, the, the heaven of religions, but the highest, and show our, you know, that card, uh, you don't know, I am so and so, I have done a lot of good upon earth. The reward of doing material good is to have material riches, nothing more. <laughs> because it's balances. We can't think that by doing it, by, you know, some donations or gifts, we can uh, rise to the highest. No, it, we'll get that at the most. Which is not always a good thing to have. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to be deprived. <laughs> so, that's a different state. We can't claim it just because I have done something on earth or I am someone special. Maybe in the eyes of the world I may be someone special, but the divine has a different vision altogether. People who may be very much hailed upon earth, the divine may not uh, look upon them with the same eyes. Whereas there are people who may be very simple. I have seen such people in so many numbers. In ashram I have seen, I am amazed. See, sometimes we go to the ashram and see only those nutcases. <laughs> but once, try to, I strongly suggest, you know, people who want to know the real ashram life, stay for a month and just interact with those who are not at all known, not prominent, quietly going around doing their work. And you'll be amazed that how these people with such simplicity, joy, childlike trust, amazing, they would have wonderful experiences, they will not talk about it. So full of humility, so full of mother, 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 ask them, why are you a mother? <laughs> so this is the process of the change. Ego and the divine don't go together in any authentic yoga. Kabir, great mystic, yesterday we were hearing, what is he said? Prem galiyati sakari tame dona samahi. Jab mein tha tab hari nahi. Jab hari tab mein nahi. When I am there, hari, the Lord is not there. When the Lord is there, tab mein nahi. I am not there. Why? Because the lane of love is very, very narrow. You can't have two. Only one. In biblical saying it is put like that. My Lord is a very jealous God. He doesn't accept, tolerate. You love the world, you love this, that, and you also love me. He'll say, you decide, <laughs> make a choice. He'll make sure that we are pulled from all other clasps and given to him. This doesn't mean we have to outwardly start leaving people, become rough, harsh to them. No, a God lover is always full of sweetness and joy. But all his allegiance is to the divine. Shurabindu puts it beautifully in one of his aphorisms. He says, a word or two maybe here and there but the bhav is very beautiful he says this world has been so perfectly made so perfectly made with what wisdom what is the perfection of the world we don't see perfection he says so perfectly made that uh, to commit adultery with God this world is so perfectly made and then he explains it he says we are married to the world and owe to it Something by way of duty. You know, we are married, we have <laughs> some duty to fulfill. But in our secret heart, it is God who is our beloved and paramour. Now you see how he lifts up a human 
what is normally would not be regarded as something nice, pleasant, to what heights? This is how Shupinda transforms every quality into its divine equivalent. Very often, yesterday I think we were reading, even he will transform because it derives its truth from something in the highest. This world is so perfectly made. How it is made? To commit adultery with God. What a remarkable line. We are married to the world. So I have to do duty, provide, maybe make a cup of tea and look after. But secretly whom I am loving, my divine beloved and paramour. Look at the marvel, perfection, how it liberates us from all sorrow and suffering. People cry, I am alone, I am alone. Oh, you are so fortunate to be alone. Thank God you are alone. Because you, you can now make your paramour and beloved also your husband or wife or friend, whatever you want. Because now you have no, no issues. Otherwise you have to secretly love. Outwardly ever. This is the beauty of the path. And as it opens, our relation changes. So some people get into all this, you know, mother outside, mother inside. Start the journey. You can't know all about the ocean when we are still waddling on the coastline. Go in, see how deep it is. The last one who went to measure it was a salt doll who dissolved in the sea. Sri Ramakrishna's story. Try, see the delight, the joy, the adventure, the danger, the charm, the vastness, the heights and the depths. Mind-boggling, amazing, the delight. Everything we can't know standing on the surface. So mother says, take a plunge. Then we will realize the, ex- the experience. People raise this question, mother, is she there, not there? Who is there in the ashram now? Who is the guru? Try, go a few steps and see how you will see that much more than a guru, much more than your own self. I can tell you, I have not seen the mother with these physical eyes. But I can tell you, I can doubt my existence, but I cannot doubt mother's existence. I can doubt the substance of this body and the substance with which we are made and say that I am far from myself, but she, she is closer than our breath and our heartbeats. And this is not just my experience, experience of many. They may not be articulate to use these words. It's just mother's grace that I can put in these words. There are plenty of people who experience this. Number of people in ashram who are, you know, who have not seen mother. They have this experience. Ask them, who is closest to you? See, even in sleep you wake them. Say, ma, ma, ma. What a question you are asking. So as we proceed, the mother herself will reveal to us and unfold who she is, what she does for us. And what is it that she cannot do? Why we don't need to turn anywhere for anything. If we want nirvana, this is how she can give it. The story of how Amrita and two others were sitting and reading the life divine. And mother passes by and they say, What Amrit, what are you doing? Mother reading life divine. What are you reading? Very good. Mother, we are reading Brahman, Maya. Oh, very good. Mother, but we understand nothing. Oh, is it? She gives a knock on the head and goes, you understand nothing? And they are projected into the consciousness of Brahman. When she comes back, she sees they are still, (laughs) cause them down. She says, my child, I can give you Brahman realization like this. But we are not here for that. 
We are here for something greater, something else. Can we imagine? I can give you a Brahman realization like this. We want just to be protected, to move on our life, just safe from dangers. She is there. She, any which way, Arth, Artharthi, Jigyasu, Gyani, or something still greater, and we will find her there. We sink into the abyss, she will come down with us. Because this time, the divine has chosen to come as the mother, not as guru. When people would treat her as guru, she would say, Oh, you want to put me down? Or you want to show me my place of being a guru? Put me on a pedestal to worship me? I don't want that. I am much more happy and comfortable. It's natural to me to be a universal mother of all. Even lizard, what to speak of human being, falls upon us and somebody wants to disturb you. Or no, no, no. I am the mother. I am its mother too. Blackie the crow, sitting outside, every day would have food from her hands. What fortunate crow. One day, mother would not come out for some reason. Champaklalji took the bread to give it to the crow. The crow turned away, went away. I don't want from your hands. Sometimes we wonder whether crows are better off or we are better off. We only have an illusion that we are someone special and great because we are articulate. But yeah, we'll come to that. Some questions, we'll have time. But this is the kind of relation. Dogs, donkeys, bullocks, all of them connected with her. Flowers, plants, vegetables, beings of other worlds. Denizens of dark worlds coming to her. What is that glory? Can we? Sometimes I feel anything we speak about her is to limit her. And all that she has brought, and we say, oh, supramental, we'll do it our way. <laughs> so we can try it, of course. So let me quickly just read two passages and then have question answers because time is short. If I flow into this, there'll be no end. So, we'll just read quickly two passages. There is but one way. Now, here she gives two approaches. One is from the heart, another is from the mind. There is but one way to want what the Supreme Consciousness wants. Whatever the consequences in terms of our silly little conception, not to worry. Supreme Consciousness, if it had the same intelligence like ours, it's not worth approaching. If the Divine should want exactly what we also want, do our bidding, then it's no more Divine, but projection of my Consciousness and calling it Divine. Like this, Mother opens her hands to want what you want. And then she says something very powerful for those who want to proceed in a certain... We are, we are the Divine who has forgotten Himself. We are the divine who has forgotten himself. And our task, the task is to re-establish the connection. Call it by any name you like. It doesn't matter. It's the perfection we must become. That's all. So she gives one opening through a different passage. Don't want to call God divine. Doesn't matter. But seek a higher and better state than this struggling humanity in which we are so satisfied. So precarious, knocked at every step. You plan things for 
God knows posterity. What happens? The moment we walk a little ahead, we trip over, we fall, we die. I mean, what is, at least this should make us wonder how precarious is human life. The perfection, the power, the knowledge we must become, that's all. Call it what you like. It doesn't matter to me. She is not affected, you know, whether we call her God or not. (laughs) She doesn't say. She says, okay, fine. Seek the perfection within you. You are the divine who has forgotten himself. You can do it, fine. No problem. That's the aspiration we must have. We must get out of this mire, this stupidity, this unconsciousness, this disgusting defeatism that crushes us because we allow ourselves to be crushed. All that she wants is that man should get out of this mire, this ignorance, this darkness, this unconsciousness, this stupidity in which he is so happy like a first class jail. In India, let me add, where you have television, mobile phones, even in third class jails there are Depending on, you know, your political connection. But it's a jail. Get out of that state. It's not worth it. Just imagine, this life we may regard as very lucky. Because, you know, we have things. But have we thought of what may follow? When we are 70, 75, the beauty of the face is gone and the bank balance has been taken away. And we are left with a credit card, which only works for few things. And then when we come back again, we pick up a bag to go to school again. Who knows where? Is that life? Are we happy with that? Again ignorance, again unconsciousness, again somebody will come and tell us about Mother and Shobindo or something else and we again try meditation. And that's why she wants to change matter so that of course coming upon earth but still at least something from our side. Surely when it will change The moment we take a human body, we will awaken to the new consciousness, to the divine consciousness. This is the big problem, that if divine is so near, truer than our own self, if he is the sole reality, why don't we experience? Why do we have to do yoga? Well, because matter doesn't allow. When matter is transformed, the moment a child is born, the first cry will be, Ah, mother, I am here. He will remember that I came from there and I am here. This will be a transformed, divinized clay where you immediately recognize the divine all around. You feel the impact of the divine. But that's going to take some time. And she thought about this problem that if divine is the sole reality, why don't we experience? Because matter is obscure. Of course, the vital and mental are also impure. But even if you purify them, have it in the inner being, matter remains obscure. So if you are born on earth, no divine. It takes long to come out of that stunned state. Then she makes yoga again so simple. When you become simple, you know, like a child, all goes well. But you mustn't be afraid, neither afraid of falling ill, nor of becoming imbecile, nor even of dying. You must be like this, vast like the sea. If you could only have a feeling of smiling trust, but to get that, the consciousness must be as vast as the creation itself. Ultimately, it always boils down to this. He knows better than we what has to be done. Makes it so simple. Yoga made easy. There, he knows better than we what has to be done. 
then she tells us something more to do. We have to do along with this something else. And we must do it. If we could smile, it would be so much easier. So she is telling us, <laughs> smiling trust in the divine. Here is a divine who wants us to smile and be happy. She says, divine is looking after, taking care. It's not the way you want it to be. He knows his way. He knows the path. One who has made this world is ever its Lord. Our errors are his steps upon the way. He works through the fierce vicissitudes of our lives. He works through the hard breath of battle and toil. He works through our sins, our sorrows and our tears. Whatever the appearance we must bear, whatever our strong ills and present fate, when nothing we can see but drift and bail, a mighty guidance leads us still through all. This guidance is not like, oh mother tell me what I have to do, okay do this. How does the sea guide it carries in a giant wave everything towards the shore. Just flow with it. It will take you. And at the end, we always say, oh, I don't have peace. And here is a peace which has a power. If someone has given himself to the divine, if should be underlined ten times, of course. But look at it. If someone has given himself to the divine and trusts the divine, the divine looks after him. The great promise of the Gita, the great promise of all the great incarnations. Look what Mother is saying. If someone has given himself to the divine and trusts the divine, the divine looks after him. And, for instance, all that has to be done for you is being done every minute. And if you in turn ask the divine to look after someone, that too is done. Can we beat it? Mother knows. She says, okay, this is fine, but what about those whom we you know, care for and cherish? She says, that is also done. But there is an if. It doesn't work the other way. Let me try and test. I doubt. Let me see. Let me see that other devotee's life, this person, oh, so-and-so had a fracture. This Then it doesn't, because we don't know what's going on inside. If we give ourselves to the divine, he takes care of everything. But this first act of giving has to be from our side. He, Because he loves freedom. He doesn't bulldoze upon us, impose upon us. It, obviously, it's like love. Cannot be forced. You can't say, you better love me. It cannot be. By its nature, it's a you know contradiction. <laughs> so, divine can't say, you give yourself to me, better. <laughs> he leaves us. That's why the if. That we have to do in our freedom. That is our freedom. And done for the best. But the best is as the divine sees it. You must be in peace. The peace of absolute trust. How to bring peace? Trust the divine. Absolute trust. What needs to be done will be done. The divine knows better than what we know. And if you are worried about others, tell the divine. Mother, I am concerned. So and so is running fever. So and so is having this problem. Please help. She will respond. As simple as that. 
the peace of absolute trust peace has the power to annul the obstacles this peace that comes from trust in the divine removes all obstacles this is the power of peace so what a wonderful path what a wonderful journey and what a wonderful mother love in her was wider than the universe the whole world could take refuge in her single heart so we have 15 minutes we can have some questions you had a question yeah yeah yeah, yeah i'll come back to you manohar bhai ha huh? okay fast <laughs> sure sure doesn't matter you ask please feel free uh, so in the hindu religion like uh, 330 million gods like the local deities and every, everything is connected to one big family so where is the mother of this how can the gods come without a mother the answer is very simple <laughs> see there is the and it's there in hindu religion only is there in hindu religions look at it like this you know we have such a wonderful ramas family could the ramas family come into existence without a grand sire we have to go to his house to see the picture right asu bhai there is picture of your parents no we may not know them we may not see them you know most of us don't know unless we go to the house and we'll see oh there it comes from <laughs> so in hindu religion itself it is there it's a very unfortunate i would use the word propaganda which has gone on systematically against the hindu religion that oh they have many many gods polytheism we it's the unique religion which has reconciled one and the many in fact it starts on that premise what is creation the one becoming the many eko ham bahushyami but it also says ekam satyam vipram bahuda vadanti the truth is one the wise call by many names so these many names are who are these gods they are many aspects of the one divine let's put it like this all of us i take my example i am a resident of the ashram an ashram inmate right now i am here as a speaker sharing mother's delight with each one of us i am also a father and if my son comes and talks to me i can't give him a lecture on mother and shurbindo i am also a doctor when patients come i can't say heal yourself by the light and the grace <laughs> they will say doctor has gone crazy <laughs> i am also a husband and i better listen to my wife now you see i mean half jokingly but what i mean is that all these are various aspects of my one being one personality and one person sees one aspect another person sees another aspect if you ask my wife what is the most prominent thing about him she will say he loves sweets first she will say that then she will talk of anything else i am not supposed to have sweets so it's it strikes you know 
He loves sweets. Now, this is the way. If you ask my son, he will say, Oh, my dad never gets angry. Because that's how he has connected with me. If you ask someone else, they will say, Oh, he speaks wonderfully. But behind all this, there is the same one person who is nothing but a child of the mother. His own identity is that. If you ask me, what is your identity? I will not say I am a husband, I am a father, I am all this. I will say I am mother's child. That's it. So, there has to be a root of creation, a womb, a source from which everything has emerged. That is the Divine Mother, Aditi. The mother of the gods, that's how she is known. And in Savitri, in adoration of the Divine Mother, we have this line. The sun from which we kindle all our sons. The light that leans from the unrealized vasts. The might of all that never yet came down. Mother of all might and beauty and strength. So she is one. But she is infinite aspect. Now blow it up on mega scale. This example was a very stupidly human example but just for the sake of understanding. Do it at mega scale. For someone the divine is like this. For somebody the divine is like an enemy. People regard divine as enemy also. Ravana regarded him as an enemy. So divine said, okay I have to give you my embrace. You want the embrace of the wrestler? Here is the embrace of the wrestler. For somebody else divine's touch would redeem a turned stone into something else. I am saying now in the context of Ramayana. So Kevat says, please don't touch my boat. Without cleansing your feet, I can't allow you because the last you touched Ahilya, you turned it, her into, you know, a goddess. He wanted an excuse to touch his feet and, you know, have the Chernamrit. So, the beauty of Hinduism is, I must say, that it is such a vast, many-sided, complex structure where there is place for everything and everyone. For the many, for the one. For multiple seekings. That's why Hinduism never went into this problem of, you know, evangelistic, turn, convert. Whom to convert? We have ourselves. We have Shaivites who regard Shiva as God, supreme. Ask the Vaishnavas. This is not Vishnu is God. But they don't, you know, some of them fought. But eventually we are fine. We reconcile with each other. We can marry with each other and we are fine with each other. Because, well, we know that both Shiva and uh, Vishnu, they come ultimately from one source. And there are stories like that. And ultimately they also don't know where their source is. And there are actual stories which point towards it. Take the story of, yeah, the, the Lingam. So... Brahma and Vishnu, you know the story of creation according to Vishnu Purana, that from Vishnu, from his navel comes out a lotus in which Brahma comes with the word of creation. So first question Brahma asks, who am I? <laughs> Suddenly, you know, he becomes aware of himself. There is nothing else. So then, you know, he enters and sees there is Vishnu. There is second one also. <laughs> At least I am not alone. Then both of them, when they wake up, I am cutting the story short, who is greater out of the two? Now the problem is Brahma has first become aware. So he says, I am, I am the one who became aware myself. So I am the greater. So Vishnu says, you don't know. Though I was sleeping, you have emerged from me. So both want to have a, between them, sort it out. Suddenly, Mahesh appears as a big lingam. Shiva is a huge column of light, endless column of light. And he says, look, do one thing. 
you go this way, I am not even in the picture. He doesn't put himself in the picture. He says, you go this way and another goes this way. Whoever finds the end first will be the winner. So Brahma says, I'll take the upward route and Vishnu says, I'll take the downward route. So as Brahma is going up, again, I'm cutting off the details. He wants to come first. What to do? So he meets a bird and says, uh, Parijat flower, which is falling. He says, oh, Parijat, can you tell me the end of this? He says, no, you can't know the end. He says, no, no, you come with me. I'll go and tell this is the proof. At the end you find this and I have found the end. So he comes back. Vishnu also comes back. So he says, so who found? So Brahma says, I found the end and I came first. So he says, okay. Vishnu, what about you? He says, I didn't find the end. I came back. I gave up the effort. There is no end to this. So that is the time that Shiva says to Brahma, you have lied. See the origin of lie. You have lied. Therefore, nobody will ever worship you. That's why if you see in whole of world except for one place, Pushkar, where there is Brahma's temple, there is no other place Brahma is worshipped. Whereas Vishnu, because he was honest and truth, truthful, he becomes. Now, it's not about Vishnu and Brahma. It's about the endlessness of creation. Where is the end? Does it end with the one whatever image? That one is infinite. That one is not finite. Now, if the one is infinite, obviously there will be infinite expressions, infinite qualities, infinite manifestations. The problem is we say the one, but don't use the word infinite. There used to be a joke. You know, we have heard this, Sabka Malikek, you know. It's a very beautiful thing, you know, uttered by some great saint, that apart. So, I have a friend who would greet whenever he says, he would say, Sabka Malikek. So, I would jokingly say, I said yes, but you know, many will say, and that is my my God. <laughs> so, Malikek, but mera wala. In Hinduism, there is no such thing because to start with, he is infinite. So, Hinduism can easily accommodate Allah, a lover of Allah. See, Sufism movement came. That's why all these religions came to India and found their place and underwent a change. He can easily accept a Christian taking Christ as the ultimate deity. There is no issue about it at all. No Hindu will ever say that, you know, don't worship Christ, only Vishnu can lead you. No, he understands. Christ is as much a child of the mother baby on her lap, as Vishnu and Brahma are babies on her lap. But what that is, that father, what that is, who has no name, no form, and infinite, you can call him Allah, doesn't matter. Hindus can call him Parbrahman, it's perfectly fine. The Buddhist will call him Dao, it's alright. No issue. That's why Hinduism has survived. In spite of so much of onslaught. And that is the beauty. It's wideness. It's richness. It's complexity. I mean, I could go on. Among the religions. And I have no issues about you know mentioning this categorically. There is nothing which can remotely touch it. It is all accommodating all. If you want to follow only one, perfectly fine. Nobody says you have to worship the gods. Look at the Ishupanishad. It doesn't even mention the gods. The only mention is of Surya Savitri, which is the gates of the sun. It doesn't say, Hiranmayena patrena satyasya pihitam mukham. That's all. It doesn't, it says, Aneja dekam manaso javayyo. Uh, you know, he who runs faster than the gods. What is that? Uh, what somebody could remind me? 
Tadejati, Tanejati, he who is far, he is near. The one who runs faster than the mind. Anejade ka manuso javiyo. Nena deva apno one purva marshat. Look at the beauty of the scripture. He who is sifter than the mind, sifter than the gods. Even the gods are babies. Gods are there because there are power in respect. See, in Islam it's told in a different way. In Islam it will be said, um, uh, he is merciful, he is kind, he is strong. In Hinduism they are also seen as aspects. There is the only difference. There is no issue at all. If you go to the root, you will see the same truth. In Christianity, he is all loving, he is also justice. At least few aspects are there, no? which we see in Christ's embodiment. So, in Hinduism, they were given infinite scope. So, we had 33 million last census. I don't know. Some gods keep adding. <laughs> Maybe there are more. Plus, minus few. And that's why we can joke about it. You see, I mean, we can make fun. Because all the gods find. Still, they do not. Uh, this question was asked. You know, Nolnida has given a nice talk on it. Someone asked, how many gods are there? Is there in Yagnvalk Samvad? So Yagnvalk is asked, how many gods are there? So Yagnvalk says, 33 millions or 30,000 or 3,000 or perhaps 3 or 1 and a half or 1. This is the answer he gives. <laughs> and at the end, he doesn't say, but all of the above. <laughs> so it is equally true, 33 million. It is equally true, 1. It's equally true, the one who became two, so one and a half. You can say three, Trimurti. You can say four, the four who guard the gates of the sun. You can say seven, the seven planes of existence. You can say five, if you include Anandame. You can say six, because from the Chit Tapas, everything has come out. So, that is the beauty. Play with it, because divine is here to play. Okay. <laughs> I think we went far beyond the yeah, answer, yeah. That's a very good question, lost in antiquity, but to start with whatever I'm aware of, I will tell you, and whatever intuitively I'm aware of. See, there is, this seeking for the divine has been there since man began to consciously think. Because the first thought is again, who am I? What am I doing here? Any, after your first needs are satisfied, you question these things. So there were these early mystics everywhere in the world. And Mother says, and Shurabindu also confirms, there was a culture that dated even before the Vedas and the Chaldeans. It dated before that. And these mystics experienced contact with the divine, one, infinite, whatever way. But they did not systematize, the means were not developed, the instrument you know, were not yet. But slowly as mankind evolved, it began to note what it experienced you know, with the development of the mind. That's when we see these, the Vedic culture coming up. So, origin of Veda is man's soul. The soul experienced some great truths. And because it was a typal age when we did not have the complexity of an intellectual analytical mind, therefore, they experienced and they gave it a form. They did not, you know, oh, how can I see Agni? Am I hallucinating? Thankfully, there were no psychiatrists. So, you know, they gave rise to these mystic truths. Then these rishis, because mankind was ready, beings from higher planes of consciousness then came upon earth. They were called involutionary beings. 
and they were given the command strange commands to kardam rishi the command was given have many progeny so he marries seven eight you know prasuti and so so many of them dakshkanya but it is a very occult thing whom does he marry the powers of nature who are the offsprings those who will the powers which are there in humanity they release them they were the offsprings of the great rishis so it worked at both levels that's why we have our origin to one rishi or the other who is you know the gotras the 14 rishis original who set the ball of creation rolling so they were involutionary beings who came to lift creation up and so they saw those in humanity were ready they imparted the secret knowledge but there were many who were not ready still evolving from the animal to them they gave a body of knowledge in such words that it looked like something external like a karmakanda it didn't matter the knowledge was preserved either ways but over a period of time initiates were few and few and the karm kandis multiplied like you know it's so easy to make anything into religion something like what happened to the religions began to happen vedic knowledge started getting crystallized into hard form every day morning get up this time light the fire put this homam ghee all these things so the you know in india which is the land of spiritual experiment the upanishadic seers came up so they this invested those outer things of the veda and brought the deep inner truth once again into the forefront that's why they are called as vedanta what is the core of vedic knowledge the end of that knowledge what is at the end of it the end of it is eko ham bahushyami suryo yathaiko bhuvnam pravishto rupam rupam pratirupo bhavahua eko vashi sarvabhutantaratma rupam rupam pratirupo bahishya so they gave this knowledge in ways that was more comprehensible and you won't find all these burn the fire and do this ritual so they brought the vedic truth again to the forefront again over a period of time the upanishadic age comes to decline again because human tendency to crystallize it so another stream comes we have the age of the puranas we have the gita which brings the essence of the upanishad into the forefront we have the tantra because india is a land of spiritual experiment every time there is a tendency to crystallize something into a fixed formal religion a fresh stream of masters comes to break it and release that truth inside that's why the work of the incarnation is even the fish avatar when she is asked what have you come for she doesn't say i have come to rescue poor humanity she says i have come to rescue the vedas vedan udharte vedas are not just books vedas are the secret knowledge written in the heart of matter that's why satwan is satyavan is called as the veda knower of the unwritten book shirbin those words in savitri veda knower of the unwritten book so that is how vedas is not just a body of knowledge which is in a book form veda is the secret knowledge engraved in the heart of matter which shirbindo has you know revealed to us releasing it from all its trappings making it easily accessible to us in a language we can understand it's secret knowledge nothing else but the vedas the vedas have a whole section on that that knowledge what is secret knowledge that knowledge which you cannot get by the mind or the senses that's it so he when he says he is the himself the actor and the act he is himself the dreamer and the dream can we see it with the um, senses and mind no but sure it can be experienced by the soul 
So Shubhendra has brought the same Vedic knowledge in one canto of Savitri, summarized and much more. So that is the origin of the Vedas and the Upanishads. It is within the human soul, in its contact with the divine, its experiences. Veda is a book of spiritual experiences given by the early mystics who experienced deep and profound truth. But that's not the end. It's just that they are the beginnings and they have given some seed ideas which will always remain true. That's why it's called Sanatan Dharma. Those seed ideas will remain true. But many things will develop over them. Puranas, Tantra, many things. Even Tantra finds its roots in the Vedas. So they later came to be known as Agam Shastras. Initially they were not called as, there was a big fight. So they owe their origin to everything. That's why the greatness of the Veda. Not as a ritual textbooks that every household must have and read. But as a body of knowledge which is not easily accessible to the human mind and the senses.